1: Waiting for you in the next hour, it's a band whose dobro player fought in an epic guitar battle with Stephen Colbert, a writer who sold her first novel in a week, incurring the wrath of unpublished novelists everywhere called me, and a Thurber Prize-nominated humorist whose recent book paints the beginning of the world like this.
3: On the first day, God created the heavens and the earth. Let there be light, he said, and lo, there was light, and it was good. On the second day, God separated the oceans from the sky. Let there be a horizon, he said. And lo, a horizon appeared, and it was good. On the third day, God's girlfriend came over and said that he'd been acting distant lately. (laughs) I'm sorry, God said. Things have been crazy this week at work. He smiled at her, but lo, she did not smile back. And God saw that it was not good. It's...
4: it's...
1: From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon, it's Live Wire with Orchardist author Amanda Copeland, author and humorist Simon Rich, and music from Black Prairie all coming up on this edition of Live Wire. Welcome to the show, I'm your host Luke Burbank, you've also got comedy from the faces for radio theatre to look forward to, poet Scott Poole with the always relevant Reflections by the pool. And music from our house band, led by Mr. Jim Brunberg. Thank you so much for being here. We have an incredible show for you in uh, store. And uh, and I... I'm sorry, this is... Uh, John Roderick. What's up, Luke? Weren't you... Weren't you just on last week's show? What are you still doing here at the Alberta Rose Theater?
0: (laughs) I had had such a great time at last week's show that uh, that I just... uh, and Frankly, I couldn't find my car keys, so... (laughs) I just uh, hung out here, and I've been eating the free popcorn in the lobby. Well, how are you
1: doing, anyway? How was your week phantom of the operating it here at the theater?
0: It was great. I love being in Portland. I, I was introduced to a couple of new kinds of sage... And um...
1: I'm glad you're having a good week I'm having kind of a I'm, a, I'm having a little bit of a down week I um... What's going on, Luke? Well, I don't know if you've ever done this but like, if you've ever asked someone a question and you don't want to know the real answer you're just setting it up so they'll say something that will make you feel less, you know, bad about yourself or
0: something? No, that's kind of pathetic, but yeah, well, I, I hear what you're saying.
1: <laughs> well, I, w- I asked my girlfriend if, it, if I should start taking, because I have what is an increasingly active uh, bald spot in the back of my head now, and I, I asked her if I should start taking the, um, the baldness uh, pill that they advertise on TV because there are a lot of side effects that are not great. And I was asking her because I was hoping that she would say, no, honey, you're foxy just the way you are, but it went sort of differently. Do you want to, um, okay, you be, uh, you be me, okay? okay. Right. And I'll be my girlfriend. I'll give you kind of a play acting okay. representation. So you say, honey, uh, should I take that balding pill that we saw on TV, the anti-balding pill, even though uh, the side effects include man boobs, potentially? <laughs> so you say that, and then I'll be her.
0: Okay. Um, honey, um, should yes. I...
1: <laughs> right. <clears throat> that was the amount of the question that I got out before she basically screamed yes.
0: Right. right. It was,
1: um, so now I've been doing this thing all week where I'm more acutely aware of it. So I, I have a lot of conversations where I'm like Columbo. For some reason, I'm <laughs> holding my hand over the back of my head for no real reason other than I'm thinking about converting to Judaism just because yeah. the yarmulke will buy me, like, probably eight more years.
0: Well, I hate to think that. You're feeling bad. Would it, I would it help you if I, if I played you a song on the ukulele? Would it? I would love that, actually. Like a little cheer, cheer you up kind could of song? You, could you do that? That would yeah, actually yeah, be just well, what uh, I need know, right I, now. I just happened to be carrying a ukulele. <laughs> Luke Burbank, it's really not that noticeable from the front. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> I just kind of, that's just a little improv to, uh,
1: that actually, I as as you know, as jokey as maybe it seemed, that actually makes you feel a little better. Would you consider just kind of like troubadouring for me throughout the show? Just like if I have a low moment or if I just need you know a little pick me up, maybe you could just kind of be on the side of the stage with the ukulele and just come out and kind of like pump up my personal jam, help my Stella get her groove back
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when when needed. Well, nothing pumps up the jam like a ukulele. <laughs> So I would be happy to do that.
1: All right, great. Well, this is gonna be our troubadour for the night then, John Roderick, ladies and gentlemen from the Long Winters. All right, Black Prairie is a progressive string band that was born largely out of the Decemberist guitar player Chris Funk's desire to spend more time playing the square-necked dobro guitar. In 2007, he and December's bassist Nate Quarry decided to start an instrumental string band during their time off and asked fellow bandmates Jenny Conley if she'd like to come along with her accordion. They added violinist Annalisa Tornfelt and guitarist John Newfeld, and thus Black Prairie was born. Combining elements of bluegrass folk, Americana Gypsy, and yes, even Kletzmer, the band has an original sound that's still accessible enough to win them a recent appearance on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno... <laughs> Their latest record is A Tear in the Eyes is a Wound in the Heart. Please welcome Black Prairie to Live Wire. That was Black Prairie. Their latest record is a tear in the eyes is a wound in the heart.
5: As the country slowly recovers from the recession, people are finally getting jobs. But some of them are in industries many of us didn't even know existed. Today, LiveWire explores jobs in the annoyance and annoyance technology industries. First, we hear from Shelley. I'm a Shelley. I work in candy. And what do you do?
2: I'm a junior mint stubbornator. And what does that job entail? Mm, Before they fill in the junior mints box, I place the three to four mints at the bottom of the box that won't come out. (laughs) How do you do that? Mm, I just take the mint like this and uh, snip off a tiny piece of the outer layer. And once a little of that mint center comes out, I just use that to stick it to the bottom of the box.
5: And what sort of skills does a person need for this job?
2: Mm, Small hands, mostly.
5: (laughs) But candy isn't the only industry where people need skills in the annoyance technology field. We talked to Hank Hossfield, who works in the soda industry.
0: Yeah, I'm a soda shaker.
5: So you shake the soda Uh, When
0: soda is manufactured, every eighth bottle is shaken for 22 full seconds by an agitation technician like myself. So that whenever it's open, soda will spew forth from the bottle onto your hands and pants and shoes and floor.
5: That is annoying. Thank
0: you. Uh, I used to be in the jar lid over-tightening field, but a (laughs) lot of people don't realize... It's just a huge glass ceiling in the jar industry.
5: Oh, I had no idea.
0: Well, what are jars made of?
5: Well, glass. Glass, right. But these highly specialized, carefully trained professionals who make your life a little more annoying aren't just relegated to the earth. We met a guy you may be familiar with.
0: Hi, I'm God.
5: Right. So, there's a little known part of your job that I understand you take a lot of pleasure in.
0: Oh, yes, definitely. So, you know how people are always looking for everlasting love or whatever? Uh huh. Well, I try to make that almost impossible. <laughs> like, see this globe? Well, if I zoom in here, you can see this guy in Indonesia, Lack like Me. So, this is funny. <laughs> I put his soulmate, Consuelo Vargas, way over here in South America. <laughs> You get it? The chance of these two meeting is, well, astronomical.
5: Th- that's incredibly annoying.
0: Right? And then when people do meet, I like to throw in stuff like narcissism or weird feet or uh, the inability to balance a checkbook. You're welcome, Earth. You're
5: terrible. Hey. Coming up next week in our continuing series on annoyance technology, Coffee Table height Engineers in-car, under-seat pen law specialist, and Kathy Lee Gifford.
1: That was Trisha Ferguson, Laura Faye Smith, Andrew Harris, and Sean McGrath. You know, Even though those people, in doing those jobs, they're making all of our lives worse, you could hear in their voices that sort of... Uh, the, the love they have for the work they do, and this is... You know, I mean, like, that's what it's really about. I love doing this show. I love being the the host this season of this show, but I'm not really, you know, I don't know if I'm always doing the best job at it. I tell myself not to read the internet comments about the show and people who miss Courtney and think that I shouldn't be allowed to be the host of the show. Um, some of those written by family members of mine, which is hurtful. Um, I guess I just feel like this is a moment where I could really use maybe a pick-me-up from a troubadour. <laughs> and there's one right there. It's John Roderick from The Long Winters, who's my personal sort of you know, spirit guide slash troubadour on this edition of Livewire. Can, d- can you gin up a song to make me feel a little better about my, my feelings of inadequacy about hosting?
0: You know, Luke, I've done Livewire many times. This is probably my 16th appearance. <laughs> there's some question on the staff here, whether it's 16 or 17 times I've appeared. All of them with Courtney. This is the first time I've been on the show with you.
1: So far, so good. Pick me up.
0: So I do I do have a song for you. Okay. Pretty good.
4: <laughs>
0: nice. It's all right.
1: I don't really... I don't feel like if that, that was exactly what I needed in this moment.
0: Well, I tried to make it soothing in case you were having, like, stomach pains. Yeah. Is that what it looks like up here and sounds like? I'm fighting something off while hosting the show? I just... I thought probably the best thing I could do right now would just be to maybe put you to sleep. Well, that's,
1: uh, that's our troubadour for today's show. John Roderick, thank you very much for that. It's really helpful, super helpful. I'll stick around. Somebody unplug his microphone. I can't handle any more positivity. You're listening to Live Wire, the radio show that believes variety is the spice of life also cumin. Cumin's a spice. And dill and paprika. Look, we're not going to list off all the spices here, people. That's not what we're here to do. But variety is one of those spices. Come back for more variety in the form of author Amanda Copeland, humorist, writer Simon Rich, poet Scott Poole, and more from Black Prairie. We'll be back in just a moment. Amanda Copeland didn't become a success overnight, but it certainly feels that way to some of us. She worked on her first novel, The Orchardist, while she was a master's student at the University of Minnesota in 2006. She held on to the book for a few years until her agent editor and professional nudge, Bill Clegg, prodded her into finishing it. The book was sold to HarperCollins in less than a week. The book follows a reclusive orchardist named William Talmadge who brings tragedy to his farm when he's kind to two teenage girls. The New York Times called the book fiercely poetic, and NPR called it a stunning accomplishment. Please welcome Amanda Copeland to Livewire.
6: His face was as pitted as the moon. He was tall, broad-shouldered, and thick, without being stocky, though one could see how he would pass into stockiness. He had already taken on the barrel-chested sturdiness of an old man. His ears were elephantine, a feature most commented on when he was younger, when the ears stuck out from his head. But now they had darkened like the rest of his sun-exposed flesh and lay against his skull more than at any other time in his life, and were tough, the flesh granular like the rind of some fruit. He was clean-shaven, large-poured, his skin was oily. In some lights, his flesh was grey, others tallow, others red. His lips were the same colour as his face, had given way to the overall visage, had begun to disappear. His nose was large, bulbous, his eyes were cornflower blue. His eyelashes, nothing to speak of now, but when he was young, they were thick black, and his cheeks bloomed, and his lips were as pure and sculpted as a cherub's. These things together made the women compulsively kiss him, lean down on their way to do other chores, collapse him to their breasts. All his mother's sisters he could no longer remember from Arkansas, who were but shadows of shadows now in his consciousness. Oh, my lovely, they would say, oh, my sweet lamb. This is a physical description of the character William Talmadge in my novel, The Orchardist. It also happens to be a description of my grandfather, Dwayne Eugene Sanders, who was born in 1936 and died in 1994 when I was 13. Dwayne Sanders was not my biological grandfather. He came into my life when I was four years old, after my own parents divorced. Like many children, I was sensitive to change, and sensitive especially to the presence or absence of men. This man, Dwayne Sanders, had been a bachelor orchardist living in Monitor, Washington, a town just outside of Wenatchee, Washington, where I was born. His marriage to my grandmother, when he was in his mid-40s, was his first one. He had lived alone, but now, by marrying my grandmother, acquired an entire family in one fell swoop, children and grandchildren, and my grandmother's own large, extended family. My grandfather was like no man I had ever known. He was quiet, gentle, and kind. He listened to women when they talked. He was respectful, and generous in large and small ways. Though he had no children of his own, he loved his new grandchildren dearly and took us into the orchard and showed us how to work. He gave us rides around the property in an old Jeep, sometimes placing us on his lap so we could steer. We loved him. When he died of a heart attack when I was 13, I was plunged into a grief that plagued me. I did not know how to handle it, until I began to write The Orchardist in my early 20s. People have often commented how familiar Talmadge feels to them, how beloved he becomes by the end of the book. My first reaction to this is, of course he is so distinct, so literally impressive, because I am drawing him from life. He is my grandfather. I am describing the face of a person who existed and who meant the world to me. But the creation of character is more complicated than this. I am not, after all, writing nonfiction. When I began to write The Orchardist, I concentrated my gaze on my grandfather in order to generate the character of Talmadge. What I wanted to write about, the orchard landscape of the Pacific Northwest, and emotions of loneliness, grief, guilt, joy, even horror, washed over the book, indeed, were elicited by this sustained meditation on my grandfather. Once enough material was created, however, I was able to look away from my grandfather and focus instead on what was on the page. What rose from the pages was not my life, though it contained my life. The figures, including Talmadge, were not my family, though my family, my grandfather most prominently, could be found in them. The creation of character is a mystery, an alchemy of sorts. You submit your life to the page, and you produce material you at first do not understand. But through meditation and revision, you do eventually understand. The energy that is beyond the story, and beyond your life even, begins to show its face. I liken the writing process to those magic eye posters popular in the 90s. You concentrate on one image, and after a while, if you focus correctly, the image underneath jumps out at you. From that point on, you can no longer not see the image underneath. It is the real story, though the details might not resemble your life, your starting material anymore. I now know Talmadge better than I ever knew my grandfather. I created Talmadge. I was there at his birth, and I watched him die. It is this matter of control, which is finally significant, that allowed me some relief in my suffering after my grandfather's death. Because in real life, we have no control. Death takes what we love, and we create novels and poems, sculptures and songs. To make sense of the loss, but also to defy it. We fill the silence with words and shape the void. These are signatures of hope and meaning, and a universe that at times is seemingly without meaning. Somehow, this contradiction, being comforted by meaningful gestures in a meaningless universe, holds. Thank you.
1: That's Amanda Copeland. Her book is The Orchardist. Livewire is sponsored in part by Ergo Depot, who knows that even now, even as you hear my voice, there is an eternal battle that rages within you. Not the battle of good versus evil. That's the stuff of movies. More like you are fighting the battle of will your back go out hunched over that desk? Or will your legs fall asleep first? Or even worse, off completely? It doesn't have to be this way, America. Ergo Depot has a whole line of sit-stand desks and ergonomic office furniture designed to promote circulation and good posture. More information can be found at ErgoDepo.com. Here now with his poetic thoughts on the power of grandfathers, please welcome the author of Hiding from Salesmen and the Sliding Glass Door, poet Scott Poole with Reflections by the Pool.
7: How to kill Superman. Superman arrives uninvited and rests his cape over the chair and carves into my pot roast. I want to imagine this is an average occurrence. I want to be nonchalant, but I think I'm quickly sliding into Chalant. <laughs> I wasn't prepared emotionally to contend with his considerable celebrity on a Tuesday night, mainly because I can't be Chalant unless I'm French. Superman cools the gravy with his super breath and splatters half of it across a photo of my dead grandfather. He just smiles at me with his overwrought jawline. His chin juts out over his chest so far I want to hang a fuchsia basket from it. I tell Superman that my grandfather, the man whose picture he just soaked in gravy, was a master screen repairman, and he sometimes wore a salmon-colored sport coat to church. I tell him he crafted his own puzzles out of nails and tin, and he used to drive me out to sunlit orchards to pick oranges and peaches, and I can still smell them in his rough hands. This appears to make Superman a bit uncomfortable, as I am. Superman says, Uh... I thought we were going to talk about my guns or something. You sure you don't want me to lift your SUV over my head? One lady in Ohio made me bite her toaster in half. That's great about your grandpa and everything, but really, don't you think that's kind of off the subject? I could throw you in a lake six miles away if you want. Some people like that. Would you say I'm chalant right now, I interrupt? Chalant's not a word, he says. Can you make it a word, Superman? I ask. (laughs) No, he says. Figures. Super. So I tell him that the memory of my grandfather is still vivid. I still see the creases in his palms, feel the scratch of his whiskers. I tell him he once made a lazy Susan so level and perfect that it would spin for five minutes. I'm thinking about thinking about the spinning as a child, and I get lost in how much this means to me. And when I look up, the only thing left on the chair is a red cape, blue tights, and some red under, well, overwear. Either Superman is flying about the city naked and no one looks like they have superpowers naked, (laughs) or he just isn't as real anymore. I don't know, but that's just fine tonight here with super cooled gravy, chalance fading to nonchalance, and the sweet smell of peach orchards in the air. Thank you.
1: That is Scott Poole with Reflections by the Pool. LiveWire is sponsored in part by Whole Foods Markets, where you can get organic chicken and exotic starches like quinoa and risotto, but also natural cleaning products for when you accidentally drop your exotic starches like quinoa and risotto. <laughs> Whole Foods has a comprehensive Eco Scale rating system, which lets you know at a glance what's in the products that you're cleaning with to help keep the earth clean. More information can be found at WholeFoodsMarket.com When Simon Rich was just finishing up his undergraduate degree at Harvard he got a two book deal from Random House and started writing for Saturday Night Live He's also been nominated for the Thurber Prize for American Humor. Three Emmy Awards and won two Writers Guild Awards before he was 27 (laughs) Troubadour
0: (laughs) Troubadour I need you I'm here, I'm here
1: Thank you It's John Roderick from The Long Winters Serving as my um, one-man hype team this show Because I've been kind of feeling a little, a little insecure And when I, when I read about the exploits of the young Simon Rich I don't feel great about myself What yeah. do you got for
0: me? Yeah um, uh, Yeah, well I've got a song um. I like
1: how this is starting out Very peppy
0: That Simon Rich kid is pretty amazing He's really accomplished a lot in his young life More than us More than you will ever do
1: I assume that was building to
0: something (laughs) That was just the actual song. That was kind of the best I could do. I got, I got to that point and I realized I'd said everything that song had to say. <laughs> Short and sweet.
1: Terrible troubadour but wonderful person, John Roderick, ladies and gentlemen, from The Long Winters. All right, I'm just going to have to try to gut this one out. All of this accomplishment for Simon Rich at such a young age is pretty much an invitation to want to ninja kick him in the crotch. It's the journey, you guys. I'm on a journey to not be mad at Simon Rich. I'm working on it. Except for the fact, except for the fact that all of this praise and accomplishment is incredibly well-deserved. His latest book, The Last Girlfriend on Earth, is a collection of funny and sometimes fantastical stories about modern romance, including an underachieving Cupid who really wants to be a hip-hop promoter, A caveman who tries to use art to score a girlfriend, and a man who finds a genie in a bottle and uses almost all 50 of his wishes to fulfill his sexual fantasies with Marissa Tomei. (laughs) Please welcome Simon Rich to Livewire. Simon, welcome to LiveWire.
3: Thanks. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Are you just ecstatic at the idea of getting older so people will stop talking about how (laughs) youthful you are and just how funny you are? Because if you're a 50-year-old guy, you're just funny. But if you're 28 as you are, you're, you know, precocious and it's sort of the obsession of everyone who's older than you.
3: Well, I think the biggest thing is that I'm so young looking. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't admit this to a radio audience, but even though I'm 28, I look like I'm between 14 and 15 years old. And, and I think that's, that's... generous. And so I think, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think the bar has always just been a lot lower for me. I mean, you know, when I was in eighth grade, I, I, was, I was doing uh, fractions, and people thought I was the most brilliant kindergartner you know, they'd ever <laughs> seen in their life. I was like, little man Tate, you know... Uh, and, and now, you know, I, now I seem like a pretty clever 14-year-old, you know, so I'll, t- I'll take it.
1: This book of yours, um, The Last Girlfriend on Earth, I have to say, is so deeply funny to me. It, it's, it's incredibly funny. Congratulations, by the way. It's Thank a real you. accomplishment.
3: It's, it's really nice of you, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: One of the things I've noticed in reading a lot of your writing is that you seem to really love to write in the voice of a character's who are really bad at communicating verbally.
3: Yeah, it's that's that's a total act, because really I'm like great at communicating. And I just make the characters that way. Because I'm like good and smart with words and stuff. But when I write the stories I make the, the guys bad at bad at the talk stuff.
1: So you do write in a, a character in this book, which I think one of the most uh, one of the most sort of perfect stories in this book is the story of a um, a condom that's in a kid's wallet.
3: Yes, uh, that is a that is a piece uh, called "Unprotected," uh, uh, the the first uh, piece in the New Yorker uh, I was told ever to be written from the perspective of a condom. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I-, I, could read the very beginning. Would you? Yeah, sure. Um, this sort of says, says it all. Um, I born in factory. They put me in wrapper. They seal me in box. Three of us in box. In early days, they move us around. From factory to warehouse. From warehouse to truck. From truck to store. One day in store, boy human sees us on shelf. He grabs us, hides us under shirt, he rushes outside. He goes to house, runs into bedroom, locks door. He tears open box and takes me out. He puts me in wallet. I stay in wallet long, long time.
4: <laughs>
3: uh,
1: that, that, one's, that one's pretty autobiographical. Yeah. That was, uh, that was by the way, we're talking to Simon Rich. His uh, newest book is called "The Last Girlfriend on Earth." This is Live Wire Radio." I, the, the, the kid in this story has a different name than yours, but it sounded as I, or it felt to me as I read it, to be deeply autobiographical for you.:
3: You are a very perceptive
1: literary critic. I, uh... The character that you portray yourself as, for instance, you wrote a shouts and murmurs piece really was sort of four pieces called a sellout or selling out sellout yeah and is a a really fascinating way to take on your modern life which is this Mm -hmm. idea that if your great-grandfather had somehow been sort of frozen in time and then Mm -hmm. actually what happens is he's trapped in a pickling barrel i believe in brooklyn yeah
3: yeah it's it's it that that story is told from the perspective of my my actual real great-great-grandfather herschel rich uh and uh he he comes Uh, out of abject poverty from the old country, and uh, he comes to Brooklyn with five pennies in his pocket and works day and night to try to make a better life for himself and hopefully his ancestors. And in the story uh, on page two, he gets uh, stuck in a pickle jar for 100 years.
1: Uh, Pickle barrel. He's not, like, microscopic. Yeah, he's he's not
3: miniaturized. Sorry. yeah. yeah. It's been a while since I wrote it, so
1: I forgot my pickle terminology. I don't want people to think the story's unrealistic.
3: No, it's... (laughs) A lot of research went into it. And, uh, and then he goes and he meets, uh, he, he, you know, he's been preserved, so he's in brine. So he's, he's 27, and he meets his great-great-grandfather, who's this guy, Simon Rich, and he does not like him. The first thing he's upset about, it, well, he, I tell him that, you know, he asked me what I do, and I say, well, I'm mostly I'm a script doctor. And he says, you know, I'm so You know, he starts to cry. He's so moved that his his ancestor would have the education to become a medical doctor. Uh, And I tell him, no, I'm I'm writing uh, jokes for a movie uh, called Ice Chimps, which is about (laughs) monkeys
1: who learn how to ice skate, and he's less enthused. But do you, to any degree, actually perceive your life as a writer and as a creator of things that are funny as being as worthless as you make the Simon Rich character... In that,
3: I think so. Yeah, I think it's pretty <laughs> worthless. I mean, I really love to do it. I, I feel incredibly lucky and uh, blessed that I get to do it for a living. I really, I, I'm thankful for it. But uh, in part because I'm not good at anything else. Uh, really but,
1: though, because like your brother's a very acclaimed novelist. Your dad is a is a writer. Your mother also. You come from this really good stock. It seems that you <laughs> could probably do just about anything you want.
3: Uh, that's, that's really generous of you. Thank you. <laughs> uh,
1: NFL linebacker, take that uh. off the list. <laughs> but other things, non-NFL related, <laughs> probably so. I guess my question is, if you do, it's fun to do, but you don't maybe feel like it's the most important thing that goes on in the world?
3: I think that's right. Yeah, I, I, um, I love to read. I, I, love to, uh, I love to write. I, I feel... Um, when I was a six-year-old, I, all I wanted to do was, was copy Rawl Dahl, and I used to uh, literally uh, transcribe his books and then change the uh, by Roald Dahl and make it by Simon Rich and try to pass them off as, <laughs> as my own.
1: One of my other favorite parts about Simon Rich's new book, The Last Girlfriend on Earth, is a, is a missed connections piece that you, that you write, and this is sort of for folks that um, don't uh, go on the internet as much as I do. This is where if you saw somebody who you thought was Foxy out at the, uh, you know, wherever it might be, you, and you, but you didn't get their name or their number, you could go write a little ad that shows up in usually alternative weeklies or maybe um, Craigslist or something like that. And you, but these were, these were written from a different perspective, right?
3: Yeah, the piece is called Dog Misconnections.
1: We actually um, we've got a few of them here, presented by the uh, Faces for Radio folks.
0: Dog misconnections. East River dog run. Saw you at the dog run yesterday morning. You were wearing a leather collar and running around in circles. I was wearing a gold collar and trying to have sex with you. <laughs> at, at one point, I managed to mount you, and we sort of had sex for a couple of seconds.
1: You shook me off, though, and ran away. I'm, I'm interested in getting to know you a little bit better.
0: We obviously have chemistry, and though we just met once, I really sensed a connection. I'll be back at the dog run tomorrow morning. I hope to see you there. FDR Drive. I saw you out of the window of my master's car during a traffic jam. We barked at each other for a while. I thought you made some interesting points. (laughs) Would love to meet up sometime for a casual, low-key date. Maybe we could go to Central Park together and eat garbage off the ground. (laughs) Open to anything.
2: (laughs) 75th Street and Park Avenue. Spotted you yesterday afternoon helping a blind human cross the street. I can tell you've got a gentle soul and a caring heart. Would love to mount you violently from behind and have aggressive sex with your body.
5: Astoria, behind the Taco Bell, saw you by the dumpster eating a pile of what looked like human vomit. You seem like someone who doesn't take himself too seriously. Not sure if you're male or female, but either way, I'd love to smell your genitals. Let me know if you're intrigued.
2: 83rd and Broadway. I saw you a
3: few hours ago tied to a parking meter outside Zabar's. You had a large cone on your head and seemed frustrated. Life's too short for drama. I think you're cute. Let's meet up some time and forget about our worries for a while. I am neutered BT dubs, uh, but no one ever complains.
1: Smiley face. Faces for radio. Reading the work of Mr. Simon Rich here on Livewire. So, um, you were for a time in your, uh, I think it was your early teens, a writer for Saturday Night Live. What is the thing that you wrote to get them? to hire you on?
3: It was uh, my first book, uh, which was called Ant Farm. And uh, it was this collection of uh, uh, weird short pieces. A lot of them had been in magazines. And uh, uh, I, I had never written for actors before. And uh, they took a chance on me based on, on this, this weird book. And uh, it was really fun. I, and, and, but I had a huge learning curve because uh, I didn't know how to show stories visually. So I had a lot of scenes that year that started off with people being like, here we are at the dog track, you know. <laughs> uh, like, so like, it was a pretty steep learning curve for me that first year. I, a, a lot of sketches that year of, of just people talking to each other in rooms. I didn't realize you,
1: know, you could cut to things. Now, the, the word about Saturday Night Live is that it can be a notoriously cutthroat place for the writers and actors trying to get their work up on the show. You don't seem like a cutthroat guy.
3: Uh, it's not so cutthroat as the truth. Um, I mean, it's, people are really nice. People, people taught me a lot. I, uh, I, I mean, I think it's, it, it, was,
1: it was easier for me because I was so visibly terrified. Did you have a lot of things that you wrote that you thought, oh, man, this is great, and then it didn't get on, and you kind of couldn't understand why?
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it ultimately, most of those instances, it, it, the reason turned out to be the quality of the writing. Uh, LAUGHTER uh, in, in hindsight, uh, I remember my first my first week at the show. Um, the very first sketch I turned in, uh, LeBron James, uh, back then a, a Cleveland Cavaliers uh, star, uh, was the host, and uh, so I wrote uh, a sketch for for uh, uh, Bill Hader and Amy Poehler, and and uh, the premise was that they were a married couple and they had a memory foam mattress, and 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 Bill was really upset because when he went to work the indentation, the indentation of his body in the mattress was perfect but when he came home from work there was always a LeBron James shaped <laughs> indentation uh, on his side of the mattress and it went it went to dress uh, and it, it
1: Dress it, meaning dress rehearsals it, sorry, yeah, it's dre- almost on getting onto the real show
3: Almost but it didn't quite make it and uh, afterwards uh, uh, Seth Meyers, the head writer, was really nice and he said, the next time we have a host who's 6'8", 340 pounds we'll try it again.
1: Do you guys get mad as the writers when the actors start cracking up in the sketch that you've slaved over?
3: For me, uh, I mean yes is is the answer uh, for me (laughs) Uh, but you know, it's here, here's i mean the truth is'm su- i 'm such a bad actor that anyone who can go out there and do it i 'm just like floored because I would be uh shaking and just weeping if I had to go out in front of a camera heres here 's how bad of an actor i am uh, my friend a couple, I have a couple friends who write for uh, or wrote for thirty rock and they uh, decided that they were going to base a character uh on me and so I get this call and i'm on 'm on the eighth floor and they say uh, why did not you come down to the seventh floor to audition for the part of Simon? And I bombed it. I I didn't even get a call back.
1: No. Oddly, they cast LeBron James. They cast LeBron James, and he killed it. Yeah, he killed he did. it. He really did. Yeah. Simon Rich, ladies and gentlemen, his new book is *The Last Girlfriend on Earth*. <laughs> That was Simon Rich. His latest book is The Last Girlfriend on Earth. You're listening to Live Wire, radio variety for the attention span challenged. If you prefer to take your radio in podcast form, you can find ours on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and at our website, LiveWireRadio.org. We'll be back in just a moment.
5: Jenkins, how's the test subject? All the bio-readings are in the green, Dr. Worthington. By God, we've done it. We've successfully cloned a woolly mammoth and raised it to maturity. They said it couldn't be done, Dr. Worthington, but we shall prove them wrong. We certainly did, Jenkins, we certainly did. Now, the only question is if we're going to brine it first or work out some kind of reduction after. There. Oh, I suppose we could go with a hollandaise sauce, but I'm trying to watch my waistline. Dr. Worthington. Oh, I'm sure you want a demi You're always going on about your demi But I won't trust a sauce that can't commit to being one thing or the other. I
2: don't want to eat the mammoth. You don't
5: want to what? I'm sorry, but I don't want to eat the world's only woolly mammoth clone. Well, that's just not an option, Jenkins. I'm sorry, but that is not an option. That's easy for you to say, Worthington, but you didn't just raise him from birth to adulthood. There were a lot of lonely nights in the lab a person is bound to get attached. Good God, woman, be reasonable. What did Bernstein and Wosbowski do when they discovered our sample mammoth perfectly preserved in a glacier? They ate some of it. They ate some of it. And what did Sigmund and Tanaka do when they discovered the first living giant squid? They ate some of it. They ate some of it. And what did we do when we discovered the last living Yancey Riverdorphin? We ate it. By thunder, we ate it. And it was terrible. There isn't a wine on earth that pairs with Riverdorphin, but we ate it anyway, with poison sauce, because that's the scientific method, Jenkins. That's the scientific method. Well, sure, but what if, what if we just didn't eat this one? Jenkins! There's arguably no good reason to clone a woolly mammoth except to eat it. Can you think of a good use for a woolly mammoth? Oh, ploughing fields? Guarding sheep? Well, no, you can't
2: get Nathan to do anything. And he smells like wet roast beef. You named it? Well, yes,
5: I thought that... You named it Nathan? It means gift from heaven. Look, Jenkins, level with me here. Did we get into experimental bioscience for the hot men? For the fast cars? The all-night cocaine parties? No. We got in to eat exotic animals that no one else can eat and the all-night cocaine parties. And now we've got the first live mammoth that Anyone's had a crack at in 4,000 years and do you want to, to to not eat it? Can't we just nuke some of that Hungarian wolf weasel we have in the fridge? Oh, fine. You're such a wuss. We won't eat the mammoth. But I don't want to hear anything when the chupacabra baby
1: hatches next week. That's Trisha Ferguson and Laura Faye Smith. All righty. It's time for some Q&A from our audience. It's something we call Dear Livewire. Now it's time for some Q&A from our audience. Science, pop culture, relationship advice. You have questions, we have very, very questionable answers that we scribbled out about 15 seconds ago. Our live audience has written their queries and sent them to the stage, and now they will be answered enthusiastically, but in a non-legally binding way, in a segment we like to call Dear Live Wire. So Cindy
2: would like to know, can you recommend a great family reunion game? There's four good ones I can think of, Cindy. One, how many drinks before Aunt Ruth falls down and loses her wig. <laughs> Pin the colostomy bag on grandma. Best Historical Revision of Actual Family Events and Who's Your Uncle Daddy?
1: Next up, Mr. Simon Rich. Uh,
3: Okay, so uh, Dave Herson, uh, he asks, why is dryer lint gray? (laughs) Dave, I think you're depressed. (laughs) I've been there, like the dryer lint looks gray. Just talk to somebody.
1: And Mr. John Roderick from the long winters and very questionable troubadour dumb during this episode.
0: Uh, Mike S. asks a non-question. I'm not sure I'm ironic enough to be here. Can you help? Mike, you have made the classic Pacific Northwestern error of trying to combat perceived irony with weak sarcasm. And I am using cynicism to publicly shame you, which is ironic. Boom, roasted.
1: All right, tonight's Dear Live Wire was brought to you by New Belgium Brewing, who present Beer School. The country of Belgium is known for waffles, Belgians, and European land wars. Belgian brewers are known for their playful approach to beer making, incorporating unusual ingredients and recipes in order to create intriguing and unexpected new blends. In that spirit, New Belgium Brewery is rolling out their new roly-boly seasonal ale flavored with monk fruit and soursop. But don't hold that against them. More information can be found at newbelgium.com Ladies and gentlemen, once again, please welcome Black Prairie.
8: watching the boys shoot rockets at the girls. January, New Year, and I'm watching
1: here on Livewire. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our show for tonight. Thank you. Our thanks to our guests, Amanda Copeland, Simon Rich, John Roderick, and Black Prairie. Our house band is Jim Brunberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Ben Landsberg. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art. The Oregon Cultural Trust and listeners like you fine, beautiful people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writer-performer Sean McGrath, and performers Tricia Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and Laura Faye Smith. Our head writer is Courtney Hommeister, with additional show writers Jason Rouse, Ben Coleman, and Scott Poole. Sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom, with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauk show theme is written by Ralph Huntley and Courtney Vondrelli. Live Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about livewire or to subscribe to our podcast visit livewireradio.org or find us on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio Dear Livewire when we first met I was really shy.